Chapter Fourteen of Bonne Marie. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Susanna Mason. Bonne Marie: A Tale of Normandy and Paris by Henry Greville, translated by Mary Neal Sherwood. Chapter Fourteen. Lucian. In another week, Bonne Marie had totally conquered her Norman accent. Bonne Marie could use a fan in answer to her new name, Lucian, a name chosen by Clotilde. Bonne Marie was no longer embarrassed by her trailing flounces. In a word, the young country girl was transformed into a Parisian. Where had she learned to receive all this homage in so calm and dignified a manner? How did she know what replies to make to these commonplace sentimentalities? She unfolded her music and looked over it at the public while the prelude was played, with as much composure as if she had done it for years. She must have been born for this role, for she assumed it with such ease that even Clotilde was astonished and had some difficulty in believing that their meeting on the Champs-Élysées was but little more than a month previous. Bonne-Marie had learned many things without knowing how, like water filtering through a porous stone. She had acquired a knowledge of the immortality of the world in which she lived. She understood the puerile hatreds, the ferocious jealousy, the venality of all and everything the absolute selfishness and vanity of those about her, and she no longer cared to know Clotilde's friends. She even suspected that Clotilde herself had not escaped the odious leprosy, and that poor and honest friends would stand small chance of being admitted to her august presence. But she loved Clotilde, and she wished to continue to love her. She was grateful for the battle Clotilde had fought in her behalf, and brought to a successful termination— a battle in which she, standing alone, would have been hopelessly defeated and put to flight. It was to Clotilde that she owed the applause that nightly deafened her. The very carpet in her bedroom was due to her friend's generosity, as well as the bouquets and compliments. So many favors demanded a vast amount of gratitude in return, and so Bonne-Marie deliberately closed her eyes and covered them with her hands. Did she think of the past? Yes, often. When in the evening she was dressing for a concert, as she caught the gleam of the light on her pearly skin, as she loosened the mass of her pale brown hair and put it up in a fashion that displayed her pure brow and delicate ears, she remembered the small linen caps which in former days covered these shining braids. She recalled her woolen bodice, the chemise of unbleached linen she then wore, and smiled at her image in the glass with a proud and happy smile. That which raised Bonne-Marie higher than all in her own estimation was the feeling that it was impossible for her to wander from the straight and narrow path she had marked out for herself. "'I will owe my fortune to myself, to my own merits,' she said haughtily. Conscious of her own innocence and purity, the girl therefore carried her head high, and never dreamed that she could be suspected. Why should she be? Her life was as transparent as a crystal carafe. Study and rehearsals absorbed her days, and if, by chance, a leisure hour came, she spent it at Clotilde's, or in driving with her and the boys. The young girl's life was therefore a peaceful one, troubled only by a regret for her dead father, or a pang when she thought of the living Jean-Baptiste who loved her so much, and who was alone and sad so many miles away. Another month had elapsed. Bonne-Marie, or Lucien, as she was called, had renewed and enlarged her repertoire. Under the advice of her friend, she appeared always in white, always with jasmine or anemones in her hair, and were some small pure flowers which suggested orange blossoms. And this virginal apparition was hailed each night with long and repeated bravas. 
In the intervals between her ballads, Mademoiselle Lucien received the homage of the men around her, and if a brief melancholy weighed down her spirits, it was at the sight of these among whom, she said to herself, was not one single man whom she could love. Not one whom I would marry, she added. She contemplated these admirers in succession, those who were at her own feet and those who were at the feet of all other women. Their whiskers curled on hot irons, their moustaches waxed to a fine point, their huge collars and cut open vests, their hair parted in the middle, all struck her as simply ridiculous, and their manners as repulsive. And was this the world of which she had dreamed? Not so. The traveller whom she was to have met on the sea beach at sunset had little in common with this vulgar herd. Were there no men in Paris simpler, more natural, and truer than these? She remembered that on her first arrival in Paris she had often met men with handsome, grave faces, stately in form and walk, men whose eyes expressed an admiration which was too respectful to bring a blush to her cheek, but none such did she see at the café concert. It began to dawn upon her, therefore, that it was not enough to be beautiful, amiable, and clever, and to earn one's bread honestly and industriously. Something else was evidently needed. But what, then, was that something? Bonne Marie said to herself, sagaciously, that the women who were near her were not such as men would select for wives, but she was not one of them, though with them, and the men knew this quite as well as she did herself. And if these men knew it, why should not others as well, and among them the mysterious he whom she was to marry? She was sometimes a little discouraged, but as at twenty, it is more natural to hope than to fear. This discouragement quickly passed away, and she continued to look forward to the future with a vague feeling of expectation. End of chapter 14 Recording by Susanna Mason